Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I've been playing a lot of family feud with friends on my iPad and iPhone lately. And so as I come up here this morning, I'm tempted to use that, that motif, and I wonder if we said... 100 people were surveyed, top five answers are on the board. What is a word or thing you associate with Christmas? And I wonder if we did that even at harvest, other than the guilt that drives us to give the right answer first. What would our behavior, our calendars, our checkbooks really reflect in terms of our understanding of what Christmas really means? And you've heard that before. Maybe you're sick of hearing it. All across the country today and through next week, but especially today, preachers all over our country are cautioning and counseling their congregations in the midst of all the consumerism and the busyness and gatherings, pause to reflect on Jesus Christ, the real reason for the season. And I think as we say that, we're right, but we've only got it partly right. Because I think part of the problem is we only pause and we only glance. And here's the thing I'm coming to learn as I grow older. And please, part of my voice, it's weird this this winter, I have allergies. I don't have a cold. I have allergies, and it's out of control. I don't know what's going on. Pray for me. As we get into the holiday season and all this rush, I'm learning as we get older that you'll never fully see the beauty of God when you just glance. And the truth is, that's what many of us do. We glance from time to time. We pause, and sometimes we don't even do that. You'd be amazed what happens when you actually pause to look at him. If we could get the slides up, let's There is something glorious that happens when you really pause. I want to read through the passage with you. We're going to start our two-part Christmas series today called The Humble King. And this morning, we're going to gaze at the humility of Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to focus on his kingship, his rightful authority to direct our lives and demand that our lives line up with his plans and not ours. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. I don't know if uh, you guys are aware, but the confidence monitor is not running. So Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. I want to make sure I see what you're looking at. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. May many, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a position among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I began by saying that if all you do is pause and glance, you will miss out on most of the things God intends for you to see and hear. And some of us are still saddled with some vestige of ADD from childhood, it's hard even for you to get through an entire sermon without fidgeting, fidgeting doing, doing something. It's hard for you to focus. But if you don't learn to gaze at some point, you will always see just a glimpse of the things that are beautiful when you stare for a long time. I learned that when I went to the countryside and looked at the night sky. And any of you ever left civilization? I know some of you guys went to the Boundary Waters and was it last year, a couple of years ago? And when you go to a place like that, you see something different. This is a time-lapse photograph from a guy named Tom Lowe. And uh, all he did, this is not Photoshop, this is not special effects, but what he did was he left a camera lens open. The shutter was open for a while, and he just pointed it at the night sky. And in just a few seconds, he illustrated what is true for our human eye as well. That when you just look at the sky you see a few stars. But if you stay out there for an hour or so and you keep staring at that sky, something happens to your eye's ability to see more. Your eye sensitivity perks up and little by little, you'll see more and more and more stars come into your field of vision. And you see the edge of the Milky Way just staring at the night sky. That's not a telescope. That's just looking at the sky. I think that's the way it works with looking at God. And the reason that many people in the church go on believing they know God, they know all the right lines to say. I sit at coffee shops all the time and hear people rehearse so many true statements about God, but they're spoken from a person who I just feel in my gut doesn't really know this God they're talking about. They, they know him the way a journalist or a biographer knows their subject, but I get the sense that this person has only had glancing blows with God all their life. And have never really gazed at him so that the picture resolves very clearly. And this beautiful picture emerges. And so my invitation to you this Christmas season is not to just pause for a little while, put aside the shopping for a little while and think, but it is to stop dead in your tracks, carve out space, fight for it, and then gaze at, meditate on, reflect on who Jesus Christ is, what his arrival on the earth represents for human history, for your personal life story. This morning, like I said, we're going to focus on the humility of God. <clears throat> and I'm going to only give you two points. That's my Christmas gift early to you this year. I want to look at two aspects of the humility of God that are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and the Christmas story. And the first expression of that humility is simply the humility of taking on our human form. Taking on our form. I love the message's translation, Eugene Peterson's, uh, not translation, but paraphrase, of John chapter 1, verse 14. When Pastor Matt was here, he loved this translation of it. He used this very often. So the word became, uh, this is actually the NLT, I'm sorry. The word became human and lived here on earth among us. The message translated this way, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What Christmas represents before it represents anything else is that God who is spirit, God who is infinite, God who is invisible to us, chose to capture himself in the encasement of human flesh and blood and bones. 
He made the choice to restrict and limit himself so that he would become one of us. Theologians call this the incarnation. And if you know anything about Latin, you know that that word literally translates to the becoming of meat, the encasing of oneself in meat, like Lady Gaga in her meat dress. It's like that. he's literally putting meat onto himself when he was and is infinite. He chose for a season to become with us in a way finite to experience us. <clears throat> what I mean by that is, though Jesus was always God, in the flesh, he could not be at three places at once. He could only be where those legs took him. And I think the depth of sacrifice in just becoming one of us is lost, especially to an American audience. Because as Americans, we actually don't think it's that bad to be alive or human. I know some of you are stuck in a season that's difficult. But I want to mark my words. We Americans are an irrepressibly optimistic bunch. We believe that life will get and can get better. Even in your worst moments, the reason you're so mad is because life is supposed to work this way. If you're American, it always gets better. And I'm entitled. We believe it so deeply, we're even entitled to a better tomorrow than today. Having children, getting married, starting a business, having good health and a long life and a better golf swing. These are not gifts anymore. They are inalienable rights. And if they don't happen for me, dang it, my life stinks. And I, do you feel that? Because that's actually a very American feeling. Where I travel to other parts of the world, suffering is sort of the regular thing. So for us as Americans, it's hard to fully get why the incarnation is a big deal. Because becoming one of us doesn't feel all that bad, does it? And if you're younger, it's even harder for you to appreciate the incarnation. Because when you're younger, everything is tight and and it's unwrinkled and it works and it, it's not broken or torn or sprained. I look at healthy 18-year-olds jumping around and I go, ah, oh, man. Oh, man. And I'm actually saying with the old people that I knew growing up, youth is wasted on the young. When you have it, you, just leave, you don't even know what it's worth. So if you're young, it's even harder to appreciate the incarnation because it feels really darn good to be a young human being in the United States of America with your future ahead of you. So if God steps down and becomes one of us, the question is, is that so bad? Well, one of the gifts of getting older is that that optimism starts to fade a little bit in late summer, doesn't it? Can I get at least a little amen from my post-40 crowd? I mean... <clears throat> Don't just whine about it in your own house. When you get a chance to say it publicly, amen, you know. When you're getting older, one of the gifts is you're no longer captivated by the optimism of being human. You're every day reminded that, that as life grows older, as you go longer in this journey, the reality that it's going to end gets more and more real to you. And the limitations of this trapping of flesh become more near and intimate, don't they? There was an email circulated this week that a bunch of guys around my age are going to go down to U of I to run a, a half marathon. Hey, you want to come? I'm like, bunch of jerks, man. Why would you even say? It's just like another in-my-face reminder of what I can never do again. And though I can't wait to hang out with those guys, that email made me very upset this week. I'm not mad at the person who sent it. Thankful they're planning it. But it's again one of the gifts of growing older is that you begin to understand what Jesus gave up in becoming one of us. Because I feel it now. I feel that to be human isn't as great as I once thought it was. When I was 20, I imagined being 44 and being so close to God, I would just sneeze and I'd hear Jesus himself going, hey, God bless you, Dave. I thought it was going to be like that. I thought I would be conquering all my demons, beating all of my besetting sins. I thought I would be this totally other person. And today, reality is set in. And the truth is, I'm not as great a person as I imagined I'd be by this age. I haven't experienced everything I hoped I'd experience. 
A lot of things I thought maybe someday I now am sober about it. It's not going to happen on this side of death. Maybe in the virtual reality chamber in heaven, I'll get to live it out. But not down here. It's done. That part of my life is shut. And that's real. But along with the depression that wants to come in is this growing appreciation for what God did for us when he chose to become one of us. Just becoming human was demotion enough. But do you realize that when he came... He also didn't come in a particularly beautiful package. Look what it says. I mean, this, this is pretty honest. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And this is a pretty, nothing in his appearance. You could have said, at least he has a nice nose. No, no, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What if I told you for one day, I will give you a magic power. You can determine your physical form. Everything about yourself, your height, your weight, your hair color, your complexion, your ethnicity, everything, even your gender, whatever you want to look like or be, you can become that. What would the final product look like for you? I imagine for me, and all I did was put the tattoo there on my arm. That's all I changed, you know, about myself, but. Clearly not, right? Um, I had to put the signature spectacles. That's not his glass. I put that on, and uh, the Bible, you know, is photoshopped. But <clears throat> that's a stupid picture. I just <laughs> it shows you something of what I fantasize about. If I could determine my own physical form, this is what I got. That's probably what I give myself for Christmas. Hard to imagine somebody actually gets to just look like that. I mean, that's cool. But here's the point. If you had that magic power for a day, wouldn't every one of you, and whatever attractive looks like in your own mind, move towards more attractiveness? If you have bad skin or you're, you're shorter than you want to be or whatever, wouldn't you fix all that if you had the power to change Wouldn't you move towards something more desirable, more beautiful, more attractive in order that when people meet you without even a word of introduction, they would look at you and they would be drawn to you, even envious of you. And they would look at you and say, that is gorgeous. How many of you would use that power to become a quadriplegic? To become a dwarf? To become blind so that you can identify with those who have to live like that for all of their lives. How many? Is there one among us who, with that infinite power, would move downhill on the attraction meter? I want to be just ugly as all get out. When people see me, I want them to hide their children just so I know what we would not do that. But that is what God did. It reveals something awe-inspiring about his character. That an infinite God, demoting himself to human form, that wasn't enough. He took on the least of us. He took on a form that wasn't particularly beautiful. He was remarkably unremarkable in his shape and appearance. If you put him in a police line and said, which one of these is God in the flesh? You would not likely have picked Jesus out of the crowd. What a weird choice that was for him to make. If that were not enough, it further says he grew up before him like a tender shoot. If you study that one phrase, what will come out is this. He did not descend from the skies with a superhero's body saying, the son of God in the flesh, is there any doubt who I am? I mean, he could have come down to earth 12 feet tall, like one of them avatar people, and everyone's like, that's got to be God's son or something, because he ain't one of us. He could have glowed, he could have had golden skin, he could have done something to set himself apart, and if the whole point was just to die for our sins, that would make more sense. 
come down in glorious form, leave no room for skepticism about your identity as divine. Just come down like that. But what did he do instead? He came to earth just like all the rest of us. He passed through a woman's birth canal, wrapped in amniotic fluid. Someone had to cut that umbilical cord. He started where we all started as a tender shoot in the most fragile form of humanity, he entered the world as a helpless infant, completely dependent on his earthly mother and father for the most basic care. Some of you right now have young babies at your house. You understand how much power you have over whether that little thing lives or dies. If you are not a good mom and dad, it's curtains for that creature because That baby cannot go and feed itself or change itself. It will die without care. And it is in this helpless state. So to put it flatly, the infinite God became an ugly baby on Christmas Day for us. I mean, I'm guessing he was an ugly baby because he was not an attractive adult. And it's amazing to me that that's the way God pops into the human story. What that reveals to me in just the incarnation alone, which is what we really celebrate at Christmas, is this mind-blowing humility of our God. And apart from Jesus, that's a phrase that wouldn't even make logical sense. How can a God be humble? What could be humble about being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present? But in Jesus Christ, we seize upon an idea that is new in all the history of religion. The idea of one who is God, but who is humble. And that will do a great work in your soul if you will sit and reflect on that. So what's the point of all this humility? Why come as an unattractive infant? Why live for 30 years patiently just going through all the indignities of being human? His public ministry doesn't even begin until the last three years of his life. What an inefficient, arduous process to come and save the world. What is the point of the way in which God chose to come down among us? And I think if, if the only thing you see in Jesus' mission is to die for our sins, then the way he did it makes absolutely no sense at all. God should be fired as project manager of redemption But I think the purpose of Jesus' life was not just to die for our sins. That's the climactic moment. But a big part of the story of Jesus, his mission, was to be for God what none of us would ever be for God. The perfect embodiment of a human being. To delight the heart of God over what he had made. He loved what he made when he created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. He declared it to be good, but in very short order, they ruined everything. No human being had ever lived out their lives fully experiencing what God had wanted them to experience. Fully delighting the heart of God in the way we wore our humanity. None of us have ever done it. None of us ever will. And so Jesus took no shortcuts. It is something that he reveals about our God is he's not in a rush. That's why with a straight face, he can say to us through Paul, love is patient. He is not in a rush. He is willing to take no shortcuts, but he wanted to fully experience what it was to be one of us. And man, did he. I saw this really interesting painting the other day of Jesus as a a teenager in his father's carpentry shop and he'd accidentally driven a nail through his own hand. But what an interesting picture. If he was a carpenter apprentice, that had to happen at least once. And what an interesting foreshadowing, but in the most mundane, ordinary setting of life. The painting was called Christ in his father's carpenter shop. What an interesting painting. 
I thought, this is the, the nature of our God, is that he wanted to be able to say to each of us, in those moments where it's true and where we want to say this from the depths of our hearts, nobody gets me. No one understands. Many have tried. Many have said wonderful, well-meaning things. They have been so kind to me. But no one will ever, ever know what it's like to walk a mile in my shoes. Thank you for the warm gestures. Thank you for your kind words. But you can't possibly understand what it's like to have been me all my life. And there are days when your struggles and your suffering and the bad fortune which seems to hunt you down and find you makes you start believing you are singular. You are alone in the universe. And one of the powerful things that a reflection on Christmas will do for us is it will dispel that notion altogether. Every time you're tempted to fall into the despair of, I'm alone in this, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows. How does that song finish? Nobody knows but Jesus. Here is one who took his time and went through everything along with us. He even knows what it's like to experience the social awkwardness of being 13. He knows what it's like to feel desires that he will not legitimately be able to fulfill. He knows what it's like to have his best friends in whom he has invested everything betray him in his darkest hour of need. He knows. He knows what it is to be cheated on. He knows what it is to be physically hurt, to be stolen from. He knows what you're going through. You're right when you say no one else knows. We can't. I will try as a pastor and a counselor. I will pray before I see you asking God to give me insight. But the truth is you're absolutely right. I will never understand you completely. I will never know your pain. But there is one who does. So that we can never say to God, nobody knows what I'm going through because he does. That isn't just a simple one-liner. That is a truth that will rock you if you reflect on it. You are never alone in your suffering. Let me give you another aspect of his humility. And that is the humility of taking our place. I understand that pain will put you inside a snow globe, won't it? Do you get what I'm saying when I say that? A snow globe where your whole world seems to be shrinking and bounded in and completely defined by this struggle you're in. If you're in a difficult marriage, the world is no bigger than that difficult marriage. That's all you have. You get up and someone gives you a Christmas present, a new car. None of that can erase the pain of the marriage you're stuck in. You're saying, I am in so much. It hurts. A new house, a new car, new baby won't fix this. My world is shrinking so that this is all I've got. And I know that when you're trapped in the snow globe, the only story you will rehearse again and again to anyone who will listen, is the story of you. I understand that. I'm not rebuking you for it. I'm not judging you for it. I have no right to do either of those things. I know that pain changes human psychology. It shrinks your world. But sometimes your pain also does an illegitimate thing. It makes you think that your suffering is unique. That no one else has ever suffered like you. That everyone else in the world is blessed and happy and you alone have been targeted for some divine punishment. And I know for some of you, that's exactly what life feels like, is one bad episode after another. But the story of the incarnation 
and the unfolding story of the life of Jesus as prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born tells us a different story about the heart of God for us. I don't want you to miss the words that are in yellow and bigger than the other words. Because this is the biography of Jesus of Nazareth. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God. We blamed him. We thought it was his fault. Does that sound familiar? No good deed goes unpunished, does it? You try to do what is right, and all you get is a smack in the face for it. Jesus knows what that feels like. Smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Does that sound like the American dream to you? Does that sound like a life you want for your children? I know it's not a life I want for my kids, but my heavenly father willed that life for his firstborn son. This is the humility of God that that should be his life story when he becomes one of us. And as if that were not enough, listen to the famous words of verses 6 and 7. We all, all of us, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has made up our own minds what's the best way to go. We had freedom and we abused it and we walked into our own traps. And listen, where is the fairness in this? The Lord has laid on him the consequence of our own wandering. He was oppressed and afflicted. And twice it says this in verse 7, yet he did not open his mouth. Do you know how, you know that how hard this is. You know how hard it is to remain silent when you're suffering unjustly? Let me paint a scenario for you. What's the hot toy for this Christmas season? Someone shouted out, I have no idea. Fidget? Okay. Is that a a toy, fidget? All right, so we'll call it the fidget. Let's say they're all selling out like Tickle Me Elmo's from a, a few years back. And you're in the line at the store, pitched a tent. You've been there for eight hours waiting And the supply that they've got piled up in a mountain is dwindling. And as you get closer, you're going to be the next person in line. And all of a sudden, this person who hasn't waited one minute just slides right into the store and cuts in front of you and goes, can I have that? You're waiting for the clerk to send them to the back of the line and say, no, these people have been waiting. But what would you do if the clerk said, oh, you are in luck. This is the last one. And you're like, ah, but that was supposed to be my fidget. I've been waiting since dawn for that fidget. That person just cut in line. It's not right. And imagine what you would be feeling emotionally at that moment. As that person takes what you've been waiting in line for all day. So you've been following the rules. You've been doing what a good citizen should do. And here comes this transgressor full of iniquity. This sinner and rule breaker, scoff loud, jumps in and ta-da, they want all the benefit and none of the cost and you have to pay the price for them. Let me ask you something. Is there anything fair about that picture? Could you in that scenario, be honest, could you zip it up and not say a word? (laughs) Austin, I'd be, oh, (laughs) Uh, something would happen. I would get maybe even a little bit physical. You know what I'm saying? A little, little body check, something. 
could you endure such an indignity and not say a word? See, that would, your response to that situation would say less about your sense of finely tuned justice and more about the degree of your humility, I think. I know that you think it says something about your justice, but only someone with mental deficiencies would fail to see the injustice of that. You're not some genius for going, that is unjust. Duh! Injustice is everywhere. But how you respond when you are wronged reveals more about your humility than your crusading spirit. And I'm asking, is that fair to Jesus? That having lived a gloriously sinless life, going through every temptation, every challenge of being human, and as as, uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, yet he did not sin. He did the one thing we couldn't do. He lived a human life, but he did not dishonor God in the process. And having done that all the way to the end, can you imagine the aggravation of then taking all of the guilt for everyone else who blew it and putting that on you? This is the Christmas story, ultimately, isn't it? It isn't a story that revolves around fairness, but it's a story that revolves around love. If you view this story or even your story, only through the lens of fairness, you will be indignant and defeated. I can guarantee you that. How many husbands have I talked to who I say, look, Jesus calls you to be like him in marriage. That's what Ephesians 5 is about. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I I sympathize because I know even as I'm saying it, it's so unfair because I rarely talk to the wife because she doesn't come to see me, but I'm talking to these men. and, And every time they're getting this, come on, be the bigger man. Die on your cross. Carry it. Sacrifice. I hope you ladies are getting the same thing from the women's ministry. I'm pretty sure you are. But when I talk to these men, I know what they're feeling. How is this fair? How is this good for me? How is marriage a gift when I'm the only one ever giving? If you look at that broken situation through the lens of justice and fairness, you won't be able to make it very long. I promise you that. I would join you and go, hey, forget it. Flush the toilet on that one. Game over. You deserve better, buddy. As a man in the flesh, you have no idea how much I want to say that to my brothers. Because no matter how many hits they take, it ain't working. She doesn't change. And yet the message is the same. Why? How can I with a straight face call a man to die again and again? Because I cannot afford to look at life through the lens of justice and fairness. God calls us to look at life through the lens of love. And if you love a person, then humility is expressed as you willingly accept the unfairness of the situation. There's nothing fair about raising children. How many times, parents, do you have to remind your kids, say thank you? Do you have anything to say? It's like kids think, well, nice things just fly out of the sky. Our parents are rich. They're gonna... And you're like, you don't know what it cost us to plan and to save to give you that. And they don't seem as thankful as you want them to. Sure, they'll do some chores and, and, you know, things like that. They'll massage your feet once in a while. But really, when you talk about having children, do you do it to gain something for yourself? You cannot look at parenting through the lens of fairness because it is one of the most unfair relationships that exist in the world. Friendship is the same way. Marriage is the same way. But you know what's amazing? So is my Christianity. None of this makes sense if I demand that life is fair. But if I accept the call of God to live a life defined by love, now that suddenly changes everything. I think that's why, though he could have zapped everyone with a word, 
I can't imagine how hard it was for him to, to just keep silent. The mocking on the cross. If you're so powerful, why don't you take yourself off that cross? It boggles the mind to think about it. If you only knew what I could do to all of you. Just, I just, I just once on the cross, I'd just be like, just one, Lord, please. Just Father, shoot that guy right there. He, just, he won't shut up. Please turn him into a ladybug, you know? He didn't. From the start of his suffering to the end, he was as silent as a mute person. How does someone do that? The only explanation for that is love. The humility of God is born out of love and nothing else. And that's why his humility is not an imposed humility like the weak guy who says, well, I'm not a fighter. That's because you can't fight. Come on. Don't be proud of the fact that you're a pacifist when you're, when you're a tiny person, right? But God's humility is that he had all the power and he exercised none of it except what would redeem us and bring glory to himself. That's humility born out of love. This is our God. It is who we reflect on at Christmas. We need to get past a baby lying in a hay bale and see that what that baby represents is the most important event and person in human history and in my story. Let me end with this. Do you remember the movie The Sixth Sense? Is there anyone in this room who hasn't seen it, who has not seen it? I, I can't. Educate yourselves. <laughs> that movie's been a hot... Right, so with no guilt whatsoever, I'm going to spoil the movie for you. <laughs> See to it that you're a little more diligent in the movie watching. So at the end of the movie, a very important piece of information is given to the audience. But it's given only at the end, and when it's given, I'll be merciful. Just go see it this week. But at the end, when you get that piece of information, all of a sudden, the whole movie you just watched changes. And the genius of the writer and director of this movie, whose name I can never pronounce, M. Night Shamalama. <laughs> I can't, I can never pronounce his name. Shamalin, is that right? Something like that. Something, I, can, I can never get that name right, but the genius is that he gets you to watch his movie twice in a row. You know why? Because every one of us on the way home from the theater did the same thing, didn't we? We started with that missing piece of information we now have, and we replayed the whole movie going, oh, 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 okay, uh-huh, oh. And you did that the whole movie so that he got you to watch it twice. The first time in ignorance and darkness and frustration and, huh, what? Why is he acting? Why is she not? But then the next time you watch it, the movie resolves. The tension melts away. You get the movie now because you got the most important piece of information, didn't you? See, I think for a lot of us, our faith journey has been walking out of the theater so frustrated you left before you found out about Bruce. And you're like, boy, that was a stupid movie. People just don't act like that. Oh, I see dead people. What is that about? And because the key piece of information is not the lens through which you interpret the rest of the story, the story, your story, doesn't make sense. And you're left mired in pain and frustration which God seeks to take from you. And so here is the missing piece. That at those moments when you think you alone are suffering, Jesus says, remember me, I have suffered too. Like you, I have drawn nothing but the short straw every time. I am familiar with your sorrows because I'm familiar with my own sorrows. 
I know rejection. I know what it is to be despised. I know what it is to see the eyes of someone who's meeting me for the first time and know that just with a glance, they don't respect me. I know what it is to be underestimated, forgotten, abused, blamed. I know it all. And that key piece of information you need to have as you walk through your life and try to make sense of it all is that at the times when you felt most alone, at the times when you felt most persecuted and singled out and shouting at the universe, nobody gets it. God says, remember my son, because he understands what you know that you'll never understand. He understands you even better than you understand yourself. What you go through, he knows. And you have never walked alone. That is in no way intended to take away the pain and the anger that you're feeling. Because that's real. It really, really is hard to be in your shoes. I know that. But I want you to simply know this. If you could replay the film of your life just knowing that you have never, ever endured it alone. That there is one who knows. And he doesn't know because you told him. He knows because he's felt what you feel. And he has borne a very, very heavy price to demonstrate to you that God has loved you more than you could ever possibly have imagined. In your most pathetic moments, you were loved. You were being fought for, chased after. That's the God we have. And every time we sing a song about our humble king, every time we think about how humble God is, every time we see a nativity scene with a baby in a manger, I hope it will remind you that our God is not one who came down to earth to flaunt his divinity in our faces. But he has bent over backwards to say to us, I understand you. I identify with you. I became one of you. And I saved you from within yourselves as one of you. And so in your pain... And I know right now, this season, some of you, the pain in your life has strangely spiked. And that's agonizing because lights and presents and ribbons are everywhere. And your life is doing this while society is doing that, right? It's just, what is going on? And the holidays are miserable right now for you. And I'm saying to you, trust Jesus. Reflect on him. Receive the comfort that comes from knowing that he's with you. Would you pray with me? I feel that for some people in our church right now, one of the biggest things that you have to take away from this message is this idea of which lens you choose to look through as you try to understand your life. If you look through the lens of fairness, it will not make much sense. Because I know, some of you, your life has been really unfair. But I want you to know that the way God looks at us the way he invites us to look at everything is through the lens of love. Because he loved us, he endured the most unfair situation imaginable. I hope that will give you strength as you have to go back into your own life now and somehow try to keep pressing on one day after another. I also hope that at some point before Christmas Day comes, before you shut the book on 2011, 
you will not merely pause, but you will come to a stop. And you will stare at Jesus until all the stars start to come into view. So God, I pray for my church family here today. That you will grant a significant period of quiet and stillness where you will invite us to look at you and then you will show us yourself and your beauty and the comfort and hope that comes from seeing you will wash over us. I pray especially for those who are going through a very difficult season right now where they're losing their enthusiasm for the faith, for life, for family. where a voice whispers every day in their ears, just walk away, give up. I pray for those whose own hearts are not strong enough to fight, that you will somehow break through and you will come and fight for us. Thank you for coming the way you did. Thank you for what that tells us about who you are and what you're like. And our prayer is that we would see you truly, fall more in love with the one that we see. And then somehow over time, that we also would become like you in those beautiful ways. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening. We pray it in Jesus' name.